If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. You ever been confused by something? You ever looked at the situation in your life and you're confused by why certain things are going on? You're wondering whether something you did caused that event or whether it was the result of someone else and their mishaps. Or maybe you've gone the ultimate route in blaming God for that situation that you didn't want to deal with. You see, the truth is, all of us define reality inconsistently. Many of us define reality based on what we think it is. Others define reality based on what others tell them it is, which is why media is so, so prevalent and persuading so many. And then some of us, we know this is the real perspective we need to have. We go to God's word and we ask him what reality is. Only one of them can be consistent. Only one of those can be faithful, can be true, can be banked on every single day to be accurate. And that is God and his word. Well, this morning as we look at this text in Acts chapter 14, we're going to see how fickle people really are. And not just the people in this text that we're going to read, but how all of us can be as individuals and people. In Acts chapter 14, we're going to be looking at three things here specifically in defining reality. Number one, the promotion that we see that Paul and Barnabas get in verses 18, 8 through 13. Number two, the reality check, verses 14 through 18. And number three, the devastation, verses 19 through 20. Let's start off with verses 8 through 13. Number one, the promotion. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Laocian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So what do we see here in this text? Lystra itself is a Roman colony about 20 miles south of Iconium, which they had just left. It seems as though there's not a synagogue that's mentioned here. In this particular situation, we see a lame man who is that way from birth. He has never walked before. And he overhears Paul speaking to others, and he believes that he can be healed. His belief was not in Paul himself, but in the fact that God could heal him. Not that God necessarily would, but that he could. More than likely, this man heard the preaching of Paul of the gospel and the good news that Jesus saves. And it's pr very probable that he also knew that Paul was an apostle who had certain supernatural gifts. So what do we exactly mean by apostle? And the question for today is, are there apostles today? In the, the truest sense of what the text says here. 
In the strictest sense, they were sent out ones who were qualified by the, the following three categories. Number one, they had to have been a witness of the resurrected Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Number two, they had to be explicitly chosen by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Paul and Barnabas were called out by the Holy Spirit. We see that earlier in the text. In Acts 9.15. Number three, they also had to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. Acts 2.43 and 2 Corinthians 12.12. The majority text that we see in Scripture referring to the apostles refer to the twelve apostles originally called by Jesus, which one of them was replaced uh, with Judas having committed suicide. Paul qualifies himself as an apostle having seen the resurrected Christ. So here's the question, and I don't know if you've been paying attention to this text as we've been reading. What about Barnabas? Was he or was he not an apostle? Well, as we see early in verse 4, some of the multitude of Iconium sided with, what's the word used? The apostles. Is that plural or singular? Plural. Who's the apostles that it's referencing? Barnabas and Paul. Okay, all right, that's the first text. We do not have any record, ultimately, in Scripture that Barnabas saw the resurrected Christ, but I think the more potent text and verse is found later on in this text, verse 14. The apostles, Barnabas and Paul. So, we don't have a record that Barnabas actually saw the resurrected Christ, but we don't have any record stating that he didn't. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is arguing for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why he's an apostle, he mentions that five, over 500 people saw Christ resurrected at once. Barnabas could very well have been among them. We most certainly see that the Holy Spirit had called Barnabas with Paul in his ministry and that they had done miracles. So I venture to say that Barnabas was an apostle in the truest sense of the word because the text clearly says that. So what about modern-day apostles? Let's, 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 let's think through this. If they're using the, correct, the word generically as being sent out ones, I'll agree with them, but that's not typically the way it's used. They're attaching themselves to the 12, and Paul, as spelled out in 1 Corinthians 15, they would most certainly not qualify. They absolutely fail in having seen the resurrected Christ. A vision that someone wants to concoct is not going to qualify that. They absolutely fail because they do not have the sign gifts either. They cannot heal people the way Paul and Barnabas could. They didn't have the supernatural gifts. How do we know that? COVID-19. We could have seen this miracle all over the world. In fact, it could have been live streamed if this was a real gift. So very much so that they, these modern day apostles are not the same thing. There are many self-promoted apostles and teachers who are absolutely dangerous to the church today because they prey on gullible people. They run fake charities, promise healing if you have enough faith. Notice. Did Paul promise healing to this man or did he notice that this man had faith and he delivered him with a supernatural healing from God? They really can't deliver like Paul did here. They scam many of their precious money all for the better sense of themselves. 
Their target is other gullible people who do not know the Word of God very well, which is why knowing the Word of God is crucial. Your standard is the Word of God. These people would not want to be called out for their hypocrisy, so their goal is for people that they teach to not know the Word of God well. These people may be very well, very intelligent, have charisma, fit very well in the culture today, but their self-promotion is a false piety on display for others to see. False apostles are about doing things their way instead of God's way, which is why their personal revelation matters than what God's Word actually clearly states. Well, I don't feel Paul was right. That's actually a very modern, common thing that a lot of apostles and false teachers say today. Paul was in a different culture. It really doesn't mean the same thing. So that way I get a pass of what I think the interpretation should be. They would rather not repent, but double down on their attempt to set themselves up as leaders. They're full of pride, deception, abuse, and hate of others. They want to be worshipped and looked up to. It's not about Christ. Ultimately, it's about them. They're authoritarian. They called the shots and refused to have others give them any direction. And they're greedy of personal gain. They're in it for themselves rather than others. If you want to see more of what these people look like, go through 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul contrasts them with himself. To quote McGee, Paul and Barnabas had the gifts of an apostle, the sign gifts. They came into these places without any New Testament with the message of the gospel. What were their credentials? How could they prove their message was from God? The sign gifts were their credentials. They needed them. Today we have the entire Bible, and what people need today is to study this Bible and to learn what it has to say. So back here in the text in Acts, Paul sees this man, and he realizes that the faith to be healed is residing within him. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he tells him to stand up, to which he jumps to his feet, and it's quite a sight for others. What's fascinating here is the response of the crowd. They saw this, and they started speaking in their local dialect. This would not have been easily probably understood by Paul and Bar Barnabas. Which means that's one of the reasons why they didn't quickly respond right away. They didn't know what was going on. This crowd response was to proclaim that they were Zeus and Hermes. And they've come down to visit them. This was an incredible miracle. This is only a deity that could do this. So you must be gods. This man couldn't walk from birth. And all of a sudden he's up and running. To this pagan crowd, only gods could do things like this, which means they must be represented by Paul and Barnabas here. Zeus and Hermes are the Greek names. The Latin or Roman names are Jupiter and Mercurus. If you have a KJV, it will read differently than, the, than NKJV on this one, as one commentator explains, which is interesting. I actually looked at this and I couldn't believe it myself. Due to an old and foolish fashion of replacing Greek proper names by their Latin equivalents and English translations from the Greek. The real words were Zeus and Hermes. The real proper names that were spelled out from the text, the Greek text, are Zeus and Hermes. Paul referred to, in this text, 
as Hermes. That's what he's referred to as. Because he's the messenger, if you will, of Zeus. What's interesting to know is this is where we get our word hermeneutics from. For those of you that understand that hermeneutics is the proper interpretation of Scripture, the way we look at Scripture. This crowd thought so highly of them that they were about to sacrifice to them for their divine attributes. But as we see with anything that seems a little out of the ordinary, we need a reality check. They needed a reality check. Number two, the reality check, verses 14 through 18. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. What Paul and Barnabas do here is they provide a reality check to the multitude that's just gathered to give them worship, if you will. They tear their clothes which indicated to the crowd that this is absolute blasphemy. We are not worthy of godlike status. It was absolutely vile to portray them as gods. Paul calls them out and asks them why they are even doing this. We're just men. We're human, just like you are. Paul, when he says this, is not saying that I do the same things that you do. What he's saying is, this idolatry that you're in is wrong because ultimately I don't deserve the status, only God himself. The, God, the creator of heaven and earth deserves the status. We don't. So many Christians who know better hide behind the phrase and the excuse, I'm just human. How many of us have used that one? That's not the argument Paul's making here. And this is why interpretation of Scripture is very important. Paul is stating that I am not God. He's not stating that, hey, you know what, it doesn't really matter. I'm just human like you are. What he's stating here ultimately is that I'm not going to join in practice with you, even though I'm a human like you, because I'm not God. In fact, Paul understands that he's not worthy of that elevation. And what many Christians do is they use the excuse of, I'm just human, like everybody else, as an excuse to just continue sinning. That's not Paul's argument here. He's not joining them in their sin. Rather, what he's saying here is, I've labored harder than anybody else. He says that in other texts of Scripture. But I'm not worthy of the glory that Christ has. You can't look up to me like Christ. That's what Paul's getting at. His argument of, I'm just human, is not an excuse for sinning. Don't misinterpret Scripture. The sad excuse of modern evangelicals, evangelicalism is, I'm just human, that's why I keep doing what I'm doing. Without any sincere regret or remorse over sin. Paul's I'm just human is in reference to comparing him to God because he did something wonderful. It's important that we interpret Scripture correctly. 
I'm just human should not be an excuse to give up the fight against sin and not boldly proclaim the gospel. What Paul's getting at is you should turn away from this pagan worship. You can't just add Jesus to the stuff that you're doing right now. The gods you already worship are completely con contrary to Christ. They're not to be mixed with Him. We're not to be mixed with Him. They should turn from this worthless worship and turn to the living God, which is where Paul appeals to them in natural revelation. And he deals with the pagan audience differently than the religious one with a Jewish synagogue. Paul does not quote the Old Testament as he did with the Jewish people. This is an important point that I think we need to sometimes stop and, and pay attention to. You need to know the context behind the people that you talk to and share the gospel with. Not always approaching everyone the same way is important. Sadly, so many of us, we have this one template, you know, the Romans Road. Some of us that grew up in Awana. Here's what I'm doing. This, this verse, this, this, this. All right, boom, I've shared the gospel. I'm done. You need to pay attention a little more to what Scripture reveals and how Paul approaches different people. There are a lot of insights. In Mars, on Mars Hill, he approaches them differently there as well. The Jewish synagogues, he quotes the Old Testament to them. So there's a different approach that Paul uses, which is why we need to be well-versed in many different things, many different faiths, understanding the culture that we live in. Paul couldn't do much to stop these, these people from offering sacrifice to them. A few important points to mention here. You may be the instrument that God uses to make a difference in someone else's life. Don't let that get to your head. Don't get it, let it get to your head if somebody elevates you to a status that you don't deserve. You need a reality check. You are just human as they are. In the sense that you're not deity. You don't deserve worship. None of us deserve worship. Be careful to understand where people are coming from and how you approach them. Understanding your audience is important, which is what made Paul such a good evangelist. He pivoted based on the context of the audience that he was talking to. He knew that you don't address all people the same way. Which is one of the reasons why I know, for me, uh, one of the learning parts of ministry for me is really when I had a sit-down with Pastor Rizzo about this. And he said, Roman, you need to adjust your approach to certain people in the church. And I didn't understand it at first. I'm like, well, I'm just very straightforward. I'm just going to tell it like it is. That's my personality. And I didn't understand it at first. And as I'm reading through the Word of God, I'm going, there's definitely a lot to that. Paul approached people differently based on where they came from. And unfortunately, unfortunately, what happens to many of us is we approach people based on the context of what we were brought up with, rather than the context of their upbringing. Remember, Paul makes a statement in another passage. He says, I became all things that I may win some to Christ. All things to all men. Point is, I'm going to adjust as best as I can without in any way neglecting to share the truth and not compromising my faith, but in any way I can to understand where people are coming from. 
Another thing is you need to redirect attention and praise of you back to God who saves and has given others life. Unfortunately, all too often we want the praise, we want the recognition that really belongs to Him. By default, we love that. The response may not be exactly as it is here, but you're not doing it for personal recognition, believer. You're doing it because you want to make Christ known, as Paul does here. As great as it is to be praised and magnified before others, the same people that praise you one day can turn on you the next. As we'll see here later in this text. Number three, the devastation. Verses 19 through 20. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. The Jewish opposition from Antioch and Iconium was ready to meet him here. We don't know how long it took for them to arrive, but they pursued. They were not happy just to throw him out of their cities. They wanted to pursue him to the next place that he went. How many of you have ever seen somebody knowingly do something that was atrocious? They stole something maybe from a company and they got fired. And the approach of the company was not just to fire them, but make sure that every other place that wanted to hire them knew about this incident. That's the extreme that this is. Because one of the things that's tragic, and, and many times is not paid attention to by many of us, is when things happen in the Word of God, and you see someone being persecuted for their faith, it doesn't stop in that one spot where it seemed like there was a pause. It continues in another spot later on. What you see with Paul throughout his missionary journeys is he moves from place to place, and guess what keeps following him? People that want to get him. We talked about this last week. Persecution is unavoidable for those that live godly in Christ Jesus. It's unavoidable. God promises it. You and I need to be prepared, as we talked about last week. This group of people from Antioch and Iconium, they convinced this crowd in Lystra who had just elevated these apostles to godlike status, that need, they need to be exterminated. Could you imagine being praised one moment to people wanting your head the next? Man, would that be an emotional roller coaster? Man, these people thought I was great. They hate me now? On top of that, they want to kill me? What happened? This should always be a reminder that the praise of men is very fickle. It's very fickle. This should always be a reminder that we as human beings, all of us, are fickle when it comes to the way we view others. In fact, I'm sure if all of us were to be honest, we have had days where the people that we thought great of, we thought terrible of just because we felt that way that day. Let's be honest here. Any of us have ever had a wonderful day with our family only to have a terrible follow-up the next day? I mean, just a wonderful time with the kids. Everything was smooth. 
and the next day everybody's at each other's throats. That's how fickle we are. It's very dangerous for us to believe and assume that the praise of men will always stay that way. So many today are so easily convinced that others are the reason for this country being in the mess that they're in. Imagine if parents paid attention to how they have or are raising their children instead of blaming the rest of society. Imagine if the governing authorities paid attention to the way that they governed and were executing their role as a government instead of blaming solely those who don't comply. Imagine if the church exemplified personal holiness instead of excusing simple behavior and wondering why the world tolerates sin so much. We're so fickle. Which is why we can praise God one day and reject Him the next. So many of us are a lot more easily convinced than we realize about falsehoods about others and even the Word of God. We talk to so many people and take too many people's word for it without double-checking to see if it lines up with what the Word of God says. Believer, it's very dangerous for you and me to just take someone's word for it. And it's even more troubling that there's so many in the church that will have a great view of somebody only to have it ruined by one person's bad comment. Listen, church, we're saints before Christ. We're not going to live that way every day. But our goal ultimately is to be conformed to Christ, not to constantly compare between one another and how much more righteous we are than someone else. And I know a lot of people say, well, look for the good in people. Be positive. That's not what I'm talking about. You need a reality check. We all need a reality check. But the truth is we need to be defined by what Christ defines us as, not by what others ultimately define us as. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of the closest people in your life know the real you. And unfortunately, the real us is not always a version we would want the rest of the world to see. Our kids have seen us angry when we shouldn't have been. Our spouse has seen us upset when we shouldn't have been. Those in ministry with us have seen us in our worst days. Church, let me just, from the bottom of my heart, tell you, we all need to show each other a little more grace. We're so easy to pick out those flaws in everybody else. That doesn't mean that we don't confront sin in the church when it happens. Of course we do. Of course we do. But our hearts should break when people neglect what God says. It should break our hearts that there are so many Christian families today that don't take seriously the raising of their children should break our hearts that our marriages are not what they ought to be. And one of the saddest things for me as I, as I worked through this text, and I was just paused for a moment, and had to go to God and pray and ask for forgiveness, is I tend to think, I've arrived in some areas. I've already got this figured out, God. I don't need anybody's help only to realize that in two seconds my own children see that flaw that I thought was gone. I'm not as patient as I should be with many of you, and I ask for your forgiveness. 
I know it takes time for God to work on each one of us. He's taken years to work on me. This is why it's so dangerous to be elevated to God-like status. Because the same people that show you the high honor can very well throw you right under the bus the next moment. You'll be the first one to make sure you pay for messing with others' expectations. There's only one who has that glory, and that's Christ. None of us exemplify him perfectly, and none of us deserve the worship that he has. What happened to Paul here is almost shocking. After he was just praised, they pummel him with stones. By the way, just as Paul had overseen with Stephen, right? Paul's been through this one before. He was on the other side of this one. And assuming that Paul is dead, they drag him out of the city. Some argue that Paul was dead and was resurrected here, but the only thing the text tells us is that there was an assumption of death. Paul goes right back to that city where it all went down and leaves the very next day to Derby. It's interesting to note that he rejoins Barnabas, indicating that Barnabas may not have been hurt as Paul was here. Paul strategically moves on to the next city in Derby, which is about 60 miles away, to do it all over again, share the gospel there, and making disciples. So in conclusion, I have a question for all of us. Who defines reality for you? Who defines reality for you? Is reality or the, the way things truly are versus what is assumed defined by others? Are you easily swayed by others' arguments and points in how you see yourself in your relationship with God? For example, the media, Facebook, books you've read, people you spend time with. Are you easily swayed based on what somebody says? Some of us are a lot more easily swayed by that than we'd like to admit. Are you the type of person who says, no, nobody's going to tell me what reality is. I know better myself. My own insights, intuitions, feelings, perceptions are enough for me. You almost think everyone else is wrong in the way they see life except for you. I know what's best for me. Leave me alone. Is that you? Or are you the person that humbly comes to the word of God and you readily admit you don't know what reality is. You know full well that the true condition of your heart is only something God can tell you. He's the only one that can tell you how much you truly love him and those around you. He's the only one that shows you clearly that your emotions get the best of you and they're a very horrible indicator of reality. The reality check we all need is the one that Paul presents here to the crowd here in Lystra. We're not to be worshipped. None of us have arrived. Whether it's others or ourselves, only God deserves that place in glory. When we understand this, we'll be able to better face the highs and lows of life, church. 
May God be praised for what he deserves the praise for in sending Jesus Christ on our behalf. Let's pray.